Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. If you have a Bible, go with me to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 1, if you have a text today. And, of course, we always encourage you to bring a Bible. I want to welcome those that are streaming live. Thank you so much for being with us. And we pray God's Holy Spirit ministers to you right where you are today. I don't want to delay. I want to jump right in and, um, and see what God would say to us. I hope you understand. Uh, I speak for myself. I know Pastor Chad does as well. But I consider one of the greatest privileges of my life. And I understand, I'm very well aware, it has great weightiness. I know it has great responsibility. But one of the greatest privileges of my life is pastoring a community in which I have to be responsible to get up and declare God's truth to people. And your presence here um, means much to Jesus, but it means much to me as a pastor. And so I want to thank you so much for being with us in worship this morning. Uh, I hope you feel that we never take this lightly. And uh, I considered a sin of the grievous matter if I walked into this pulpit unprepared. Uh, to declare what God wants to say. And so I consider it a great privilege. And if you're new to this community, I will tell you what we do now in this gathering is we take moments to gather around the sufficiency of Jesus in His Word. And what we've learned is that as we study His Word and apply it, our lives get changed. Amen? Our lives get transformed. And you get to be a part of that today. So today we are beginning a brand new series called Third Person. Third Person. And this is a series as... Uh, indicated in the, in the title, in the series title, a series about the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God. And there is a, a map, if I can give you the map just right quick for the next few weeks in case you're curious. Today I'm going to talk about who the Spirit is. I'm going to talk about the Spirit's nature. And then after that, next week I'm going to preach again. We're going to get into all the things the Spirit does. So we're going to get into prophecy next week. We're going to spend a good amount of time talking about the gift of prophecy next week. We're going to spend time talking about exorcism and casting out demons and healing the sick and what it means for Jesus to walk on water. We'll, we'll talk about all the fun stuff that the Spirit does. But what we want to do today is we want to lay the groundwork for who the Spirit is. Now here's what I've learned in over uh, now, now close to two decades of following Jesus. And that is this, that in... The Christian church today, this is not a Western Christian church, this is the Christian church. There are really two extremes as it relates to the Holy Spirit. There are what I have come to term the last few years, flinchers. They flinch. and that These people are completely scared of the Holy Spirit, so any speech or speech about the Holy Spirit or the freedom of the Holy Spirit, they want nothing to do with that reality. Then we have the other camp that is completely over-obsessed with the Holy Spirit. And they consider the Holy Spirit more important than the Son, Jesus, and more important than the Father. And because of that, they have even overemphasized it, even to the point of spiritual abuse that has taken place and unfortunately will keep taking place in churches in the name of the Holy Spirit. Now for us, as Spirit-led people, we want to be in the middle. We want to have balance. The title of today's message is God's Empowering Presence. Let me just say, the goal of this series as we jump in this morning is not just for you to learn more about the Holy Spirit. I saw several posts on Facebook this week from people in our church. Great, awesome, I love the excitement, but I can't wait to hear this series. I want you to hear this series, but that is not even the majority of my heart. The majority of my heart is for us not to learn about the Holy Spirit, though it begins there. I want us to understand the Holy Spirit is not a doctrine that we are to learn about. He is a person we are to draw near to. So this is not an abstract theological concept that we throw into our brains. This is a person that we grow in intimacy with. So I pray, my prayer for this congregation is we've just finished the first five years, right? Let's do another five. Are you ready? Let's do another five. Maybe let's do ten. Maybe let's do a lifetime. That's, that's my prayer. I hope I get to spend a lifetime. But, but it's been this much fun after five. What's going to happen in the next five? Right? Come on, you're going to have to get with me this morning early on, okay? What's going to happen in the next five as we are people surrendered to the Holy Spirit? Attentive to the Holy Spirit. So who is the Holy Spirit? 
The Holy Spirit is defined God's empowering presence. This is by far the most helpful way for me to think about the Holy Spirit, God's empowering presence. This comes from a a scholar by the name of Gordon Fee. I didn't make this up. I mean, obviously we could say many have said this, but Gordon Fee, a few years ago, he released a thousand-page treatise on the Holy Spirit, okay? And it is mind-bending. Remarkable read, but it is a thousand pages. So here is the three-word summary of his hundred or thousand-page Holy Spirit scholarly work. Are you ready? Here's the three-word summary. The Holy Spirit is one, God's, two, empowering, three, presence. The Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence. Or to put it another way, can I give it to you this way? This is how I like to think about it. The Holy Spirit is God's person. The Holy Spirit is God's power, and the Holy Spirit is God's presence. Now, if we did four or five-month series, I would just do each Sunday of each of those three. I would look at his person, I would then look at his power, I would then look at his presence. What I want to do today is at least hit the first two. Really hit the person and power, and we will touch more on his presence next week. So I want to talk today about the Holy Spirit is God's person and power. Let me just say from the outset that the Holy Spirit is not an it. Okay? The Holy Spirit is a he. Now, don't misread me, misunderstand me. I'm not saying the Holy Spirit is male. Okay? When I say the Holy Spirit is a he, what I'm meaning is that the Holy Spirit is a person. And that shift from an it to a he changes everything for most Christians that I meet. To change from an impersonal force to an actual person that I'm in relationship with is a drastic change. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 30. This is the Christmas story. But the angel said to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call that son Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. Notice when he says the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. The moment a biblical writer starts talking about Jesus as a part of the throne of David, the Son of David is a way of saying he is the Messiah. Jesus is the great, 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 great grandson of David. But he will also not just be the son of David or of the throne of David, but notice the text, and we got to really pay attention here. He's going to be called the son of the Most High. Verse 34, notice this. And he will reign over Jacob, and his kingdom will never end. Verse 34. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin, right? Since I'm a virgin, how could I give birth To this child. Verse 35, the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you. The Holy Spirit will come on you and dual nature. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So here's how, Mary. The Holy Spirit's going to come on you. Notice that language. You really need to pay attention to that language. And then the power of the Most High will overshadow you. In Greek, the word overshadow means to be cast a shadow over. It means to be enveloped in a cloud. The Most High will envelop your womb, Mary. He will envelop in a cloud. This is very strong biblical language. Simon Ponsonby, I love Simon Ponsonby, Fabulous, fabulous author. Writes a lot about the Holy Spirit, said this. He said, it is the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the immediate divine executive. The agent of God's will. Who weds the eternal Son with mortal humanity. The creative Spirit who hovered over creation and now overshadows Mary. Creating, conceiving, and connecting God and blood. Making out of Mary's womb matter what was not there before. For the Spirit performs a regenerative and a recreative work. This new human life born of Mary is the old humanity from Adam's seed, which is joined to the eternal divinity of the Son by action of the Spirit. I hear the soundtrack of Phil Collins in the background when I read that. Well said, Simon. Beautifully written, Ponsonby. Now before we move on, notice the language we see in the text. Notice the link between power and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the angel said to Mary, will come on you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Listen, folks. Though the Spirit is a person, in the biblical language, the power and the Spirit are so closely related that they are almost synonymous. 
When you hear power, you hear spirit. That's how close these are. Let me give you a few more examples. Luke chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened up and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form. The Holy Spirit in a bodily form like a dove. Literally came to rest, John said, on his shoulder. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son with whom I am well pleased. Watch this. The Holy Spirit is on Jesus. Now go to Luke chapter 4. He now has the Holy Spirit on him, setting like a dove on his shoulder. So now Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, notice that language, left the Jordan and was led. Led is a bad translation. He was driven. There was no choice here. The Spirit of God said, you're going to one place, Jesus, to start your ministry. And that is into the wilderness of temptation. That's where you're going. He was driven out of this place of the Jordan River in to the Judean wilderness, the, the side of the deserts. Now, he passes his temptations, one, two, three, done, done, done. Verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Did you hear that? He returned in the power of the Spirit. That's key. And news about him spread through all the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues. Everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he walks in, notice this, to the synagogue, as was his custom. Jesus had rhythms. He did what you do every Sunday, except he did it on Sabbath, Sabado. He did it on Saturday. He did it every week. This is the lifestyle of Jesus. He stood up to read. He, by the way, didn't check his feelings to see whether or not he was felt like coming to church that day or going to attend the synagogue. It was his custom, okay? He didn't consult his feelings, all right? We don't consult our feelings of whether or not we're going to be involved in the things of God. That's what four-year-olds do, not 40-year-olds, right? Okay, we don't consult our feelings about the things of God. That's not what we do. Feelings lie to us. Feelings are not the way we operate. And he walks in and he picks up the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. It was handed to him. And unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. And now what he's going to do is quote Isaiah 61. Written 750 years before the day he stands up in the synagogue. And he begins to read. What does he read? He said, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me. Now notice what the Spirit of God does on Jesus. Anointed me. Notice the word anointed. This is where we get Messiah language. Messiah, anybody know what Messiah means? It means anointed one. He is the anointed one. In ancient Israel, we're not talking about now, but in ancient Israel, they would anoint people with oil. And they anointed priests and they anointed kings with oil and they would drench them. You read this in Psalm 139. The unity is like the, the oil that drips down Aaron's beard. It was soaking. This is not a small little dab. This is a soaking experiment. And when they did that, why did they do that? Because the Holy Spirit, uh, the, the oil was symbolic of the Holy Spirit. So what they were saying is the Holy Spirit is now drenching this person. So when this writer, Luke, writes this, what he's saying is this is Luke's way of saying now the one who's got oil from the top of his scalp to the bottom of his pinky toe is the one holding the scroll. His name's Jesus. He, he's oozing, anointing. He is the anointed one. And he is here to usher in the kingdom of God. When he ushers in the kingdom of God, what will it look like? Good news to the poor. Proclaim freedom from the prisoner. Recover his sight for the blind. Set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now here is why this matters. Are you ready? For Luke, and I would argue for Matthew, Mark, and John as well. The way that Jesus does all of this Messiah, Isaiah-like ministry is very clearly, we don't have to make it up, verse 14, in the power of the Spirit. He comes from the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. Now, are you ready for a little bit of theology? Too bad, you get it anyways, okay? Here's what you're going to need to do. You're going to need to strap on your thinking cap for about 10 minutes or so. You're going to feel like you're in grad class for a moment, but I promise you, if you'll stick with me, we'll move forward, and I think this will make sense to all of us, okay? Follow. This is incredibly important. Starting right here in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 4, and you read to the right, what do you read? You read the rest of Jesus' earthly ministry. You read miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. You read Jesus walking on water. You see him healing lepers. You see Jesus raising the dead. You see miracle after miracle. Now, there are two ways Christians can read the miracle stories in the Gospels. Let me give you the first way. The first way you can read the miracle stories in the Gospels is as proof that Jesus was God. As proof that Jesus was God. This is how the miracles have been read in America for the last 300 years. You say, Craig, what do you mean? Here's the backstory. Before the Enlightenment that took place in our culture, in our world, before the Enlightenment, people had a far, 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 far more spiritual perspective on life than we do. 
The sun would come up in the morning in the east and people would say, God made the sunrise. The rain would fall on their crops and people would say, God gave me food this year. But then after the enlightenment, with all the stats and realities and scientific advancement, here's what happened. The sun now, we realize, rises because earth is round. And now we know that the earth is round and it spins on its axis at 23.5 degrees at a speed of 18.5 miles per second. So again, if the earth stopped spinning right now, we would go 18.5 miles per second due west. We would all immediately fly. That's the inertia that's taking place in our bodies as we're sitting here. It goes around the sun three, once every 365 days. This then became the birth of a far more secular worldview. So now we have a secular worldview with a spiritual worldview. So out of the enlightenment was born the language that you hear preachers use all the time called natural and supernatural. Read the first 1,700 years of Christian history. We don't have that language. We have no supernatural, natural language. Why? Because the enlightenment now communicated that there are two opposing realities or two even complementary realities. Natural meaning an event. Natural meaning something we can explain scientifically. The sun coming up. It goes by natural scientific laws and principles. Supernatural or supra literally means goes beyond the science in scientific laws that there is no natural explanation. It must be of God. Now, not long after the enlightenment started, people started to believe and say, we no longer believe in the supernatural. And they said things like this. If there is a God, then God surely is, an inter- is not an interventionist. So that means he doesn't have any part in everyday living. And, 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 and of course, he didn't. We know he's not running the world because we know science is doing that, right? And we know by science that the world is running by all of these scientific laws. And therefore, we don't believe anymore Jesus was God. Now, when this happened, follower of Jesus's, followers of Jesus freaked out, which we are really good at. Okay, so the rest of the world's now saying we don't believe in Jesus as being God. Well, listen, anybody in Western Europe at that time, Germany, um, Italy, we could look at England, they all had a core tenet of the Christian faith. What was it? It was that Jesus was God's son. It was absolutely, he was the embodiment of God. So the comeback from Christians was, hey, world, America, or, or, or earth, read the gospels. Just read them. Jesus does miracles. He's God. Now listen to me. While that line of thinking is very well-meaning, there is a big, big problem with that line of thinking. All sorts of people do miracles in the Scripture. So how can we still claim that Jesus was the divine Son? Let me give you an example. Read Elijah's story. Did you know Elijah? Read his story, then read Jesus' story. Elijah performs basically an analogous miracle to every miracle Jesus does, including walking on water, including feeding a lot of people, including raising the dead. He has an analogous ministry to the Son of God almost down to a T. Every single miracle we read about in the life of Jesus, we see in the life of Elijah. Now, do we believe that Elijah is the Son of God? No. Do we believe Elijah is the embodiment of God? No. Do we believe Elijah was God in the flesh? No. We believe he was a prophet and the Spirit of God was on him and anointed him. Then you read Acts. After Jesus ascends, what happens? The disciples are doing the same miracles that Jesus did and we don't believe Peter and we don't believe Paul and we don't believe Philip are the embodiment of God. We believe that what? The Spirit was at work in and through these people. So a better way, in my opinion, and I have a lot of scholarly backup here, to read the miracle stories is this. Number two, to read the miracle stories not as a sign or proof that Jesus was God, but they are signs of the inbreaking kingdom of God through his anointed one named Jesus Christ of Nazareth. These are miracles. So think of prophecy from Isaiah chapter 61. We see it in Luke chapter 4. What did he say? What will the kingdom of God look like? The blind will see, the lame will walk. Did Jesus heal blind people? Yes, lots of them. Did lame people walk when they got around Jesus? Yes, lots of them. So here's the question. When Jesus does miracles, don't misread me, don't misread me, don't misread me. It is not so much proof that Jesus is God, although there is some of that. There is some of that, okay? So in some way, when Jesus does a miracle, that's the Father's way of saying yes to his claim to divinity. Yes, you are my son. There is a bit of that, but... Not as much as that it is signs 
that the long-awaited kingdom of God is here and that Jesus is the king of it all. Now, if this is right, and I very much do believe it's right, then it begs the question, then how does Jesus do the miracles? How does he do them? And what power does he do these miracles? And the answer is not because he's God, because that's what we want to say, but the answer is right there in the text, Luke 4 and 14. Because he came from the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. Watch this. When God became human in Jesus, he set aside his God powers in order to become a real, true human being. Look at me, church. Jesus isn't God pretending to be human. Are you with me? We get this. This is a, this is a bad mistake in, in, in late uh, theology, modern theology. He's not pretending to be human. Jesus is God, and Jesus is Jesus of Nazareth. What do you mean? For example, God is omnipresent. That's technical jargon. You don't need to memorize it, but it means that God is at all places at all times. Is Jesus omnipresent? No. No. He's not. He's in one place at one time in space and body. Okay? Let's go to the next one. Jesus, God, is omnipotent. What does it mean for God to be omnipotent? It means he's all-powerful and he never gets tired. Is Jesus omnipotent? No. Read the Gospels. He gets hungry. He gets thirsty. He needs a nap. He needs to take some time. He needs emotional health. He needs to get away from disciples that don't understand what's going on. And then he goes, what happens? He dies. Is there anything more less omnipotent-like than death? He's human. Here's a far more provocative one. You ready? God is omniscient. That means God is all-knowing. There is nothing that God does not know. Let me ask you a question. Was Jesus omniscient? I didn't say, is Jesus right now next to the Father omniscient? That's not what I said. And I would jump to another theological conversation. I said, was Jesus omniscient? No. In all four Gospels, what does Jesus do? He asks questions. People say, well, he's just trying to test their heart. Yes, there's some of that. But there's other times he's like, hey, how long has he been here? How long has he been like that? Why? It's not rocket science. I need to know how long has the guy been dead here? How long has this person been dealing with this issue? Jesus said, my favorite one, the end of the book of Matthew, also the beginning of the book of Acts. At this time, Jesus, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Uh, wow. I don't know when I'll come back. I don't have any knowledge of my coming back. Only the Father has set that time. So what are you saying, Craig? Jesus wasn't lying. He actually didn't know when he was coming back. So when God became human in Jesus, what did he do? He set aside the God powers. What does Paul say in Philippians 2? He emptied himself of divine privilege. In other words, this is this Greek word kenosis, kenotic Christology. He emptied himself. Let me give it to you in this way. He laid down the God card. And the God card was an all-access card to the universe that gets you anywhere at any time, and he set that side. And by the way, that's why the first temptation, what was the first temptation in the wilderness? Remember what the first temptation was in the wilderness? Turn these stones, you're hungry, Jesus, into bread. Now, y'all, is that a sin? Is it a sin to turn stones into bread? Anyone ever had guilt and shame in your life because you were out hiking one day and you're really hungry? You looked over at a stone and you said, bread, voila, it became bread. And now you're not able to move forward in growth phases. You are crying yourself to sleep right now. You are torn up from the floor up with shame, guilt, and condemnation because you turn that igneous rock, you know, whatever rock into a, 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 a bread. No, no. So what was the temptation? Pick the God card back up. And do what you want with your power. Did you, did you hear me? That's the temptation. To pick it back up. To turn the stone into bread. Jesus was still God and yet what? He became a true human being. Now where does he get his power from miracles? From the Holy Spirit. From the Holy Spirit. So when you read the miracle stories, don't think of, oh, of course, Jesus was God. No, no. Of course he's healing the sick. No, a better way to read that is this is what a human being Walking in the power of the Spirit of God looks like. This is what it looks like. That's what God is after for our lives. Now, here's why this is incredibly important. Thank you for sticking with the class. This means Jesus is the prototype for all of his followers. He's now the pre-runner, the, the prototype. 
Jesus is anointed by the Holy Spirit to do miracles, and we, his followers, can be anointed by the same exact Holy Spirit to do miracles. Craig, I don't believe it. Well, skip over a few pages to the right. John chapter 14. John chapter 14. We're going to jump right into the middle of a beautiful teaching of Jesus. And look what happens in John 14, verse 12. Very truly, I tell you, that's Jesus' way of saying, listen up, put your phone away, stop looking at Twitter, don't look down one more time, eyes on me, okay? This is what he's saying. Very truly, I tell you. What does he say? He said, whoever believes in me, how many of you believe in Jesus? How many believe in Jesus? Okay, this is very clear. Now you are now pre-qualified. You have now been pre-qualified. You can take this pre-qualification letter to your agent, okay? So here is the agent. You can take it. You believe in Jesus, and if you believe in Jesus, what is it? He says, you will do the works that I have been doing, and then he just land blasts us. I mean, he just throws something out there. He throws something that just throws, and, and the reason he had to say very truly, I tell you, is because we would have thought he was saying a lie by what he's about to say. And not only are you going to do the works I do, but you're going to do greater works than these. Why? Because I go to the Father. Now listen, folks. What has Jesus been doing? Miracles. What kind of miracles? Doing justice, going against the religious leaders of his day, walking on water, raising dead people, right? I mean, he's been doing miracles. All sorts of debate and scholarship today about what does Jesus mean here by greater works. He said, you're going to do my works, but then you're going to do greater works. Okay, like Jesus just raised the dead. Like, how do I one-up resurrection? I don't even know how to do that. I'm going to have to have fireworks come out of my slides on Sunday mornings. Okay, guys, y'all are going to have to get that together. I need, I need bottle rockets to come up out of these slides when I say go to the... I mean, that, I mean right? Like, how do you one-up resurrection? How do you do that? The leading theory is this. Greater works by Jesus meant that this. These works would be greater in quantity, not quality. That's a leading scholarship. Let me talk to you about it for a moment. Jesus was in a body entered into time and space in one place at one time. But now his followers, to use the language of the New Testament, his body is everywhere. His body's not in one place. His body's everywhere through 3.5 billion of us in all places of the globe. Now listen to me. Whether that is the right way to read it or not, this much is clear. Are you ready? Whatever Jesus means by greater, he doesn't mean lesser. Are you with me? Would you agree with that? Whatever he means by greater, he doesn't mean we do lesser. Jesus doesn't mean you are now B team because you're living in the 2000s. Far separated from my actual physical presence, so you, you stink, you will do nothing. Okay? He doesn't mean lesser. So then the question then begs is how? The exact same way Jesus did. The exact same abilities Jesus had. And how do you do it? Because... You may ask for anything in my name. In my name is not a tagline that you throw on the end of your prayers. Oh, well, I said in Jesus' name. In the ancient Near Eastern world, your name meant your nature. Jesus just made a promise to you. If you ask anything that is in step with my nature, it will be given to you. Okay? Not tagline, nature prayers. The prayer that you pray has to be in line with the nature of my name, of the Messiah, and what will happen? I will do it. If you love me, keep my commands. Watch this. And I will do it. If you love me, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, watch this, who will help you and be with you forever. I will not leave you as orphans. Not as orphans. Go to the next slide. The spirit of truth. Another way to call the Holy Spirit. The world cannot accept him. It doesn't know him, nor needs, uh, knows him, or understands him. That means if you're born of the Spirit, you're going to be weird. But weird in a good way, okay? They'll be like, what is this person doing? Why are they making decisions? They're not going to be able to follow. But you know him, for he lives in you and will be in you. Watch this. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. Listen, children, I will come to you. So to recap, you ready? Jesus is essentially saying this. If you believe in me, you will do the kind of stuff I've been doing, casting out demons, healing sick people. In fact, you will even do greater things. How, Craig? Because the Holy Spirit will come to you, Philip, Bartholomew, Peter. He will come alongside you. I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. Why? You don't have to gut it out, Peter. You're not going to have to gut out power in my kingdom. I'm going to send a helper. I'm with you. And church, that's exactly what happens Let's look at a couple of texts. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, Theophilus, Theos means God, phileo means lover. In my former book, Lover of God, what was his former book? Luke's gospel. This is Luke writing his second book. I wrote about all that Jesus began to do. Are you with me? Began to do. Which tells me what? 
that Luke is what Jesus began to do. And it tells me book number two, Acts, is what Jesus continues to do, but not as his physical body, but through his body. If the first book taught us what he began to do, we know that the second book is going to tell us what he keeps on doing. And how does he keep on doing it? He keeps on doing it through his followers. You jump down to verse 6 of Acts chapter 1. What does he say? In in Acts chapter 1 verse 6, he says, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel at this time? And he said, no, I don't know. The Father has set the date. And then he says, but you, disciples, will receive power. Everybody say power. When the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So watch this. The Holy Spirit first comes on Mary for the conception of Jesus. Then the Holy Spirit is on Jesus for the miracles and kingdom work he does. And now the Holy Spirit is on us, his followers. Meaning you and I will stand as living proof that Jesus is the king and his kingdom is here now. That's exactly what happened. Let's continue to read just a few examples. Acts chapter 3, verse 1. One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer. Three in the afternoon, man was lame from birth, carried to the temple, called beautiful, put every day to beg, going to the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John, he was going to answer. He wanted to get some money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Peter said, look at us. You look at me. Man gave him his attention, expecting to get something from them. Peter said, silver and gold I don't have. What I have, I give you in the name of Jesus. Get up and walk, taking him by the right hand, helped him up. Instantly, man's feet and ankles became strong, jumped to his feet, began to walk, went into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. A couple chapters over, Acts chapter 5. This is exactly what happens. Apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. Believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. That's a part of the temple complex. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by Woodstock around them. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Verse 14. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow... His shadow from the sun might fall on some of them as he passed by. I hope you're getting hungry in this series. My God, I hope you get hungry for the power of God. And and gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them, 99.9% of them were healed. No, all of them were healed. How many of them? All of them. Well, P. Craig, that's like a few weeks after resurrection. Come on, give me something real good. Of course they're going to do miracles like this. This is just when they've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Well, the book of Acts spans 32 years. So let's go over two or three chapters, but that's 12 years. Let's do it. Ready? Acts chapter 8. We're now 10 years removed from the resurrection of Jesus. Those who have been scattered. Why? Because it's illegal to be a Christian now. So they've been scattered. They preached the word of God, the word of hope, wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and he proclaimed the Messiah there. And when the crowds heard Philip, Philip is not a, a disciple of Jesus. He did not see Jesus. He's not the one right there in those 12. But yet, what does he do? He proclaims the Messiah. When they heard and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was many mega joy in that city. So here is a guy who's not an apostle. He's not one of the 12. He's a latecomer to the faith. And here he is doing the exact same stuff Jesus did. Now let's take a step back. There's a pattern I want us to see, and I want to make sure you're very aware of it. When you read the Gospels, you see Jesus doing miracles in the power of the Spirit. But then when you read Acts, you see the apostles doing the exact same miracles in the power of the Spirit. Healing the sick, casting out demons, doing miracles. Now, Craig, are you saying we should leave church today and go down to the local morgue and start raising people? Okay, listen, listen. I do believe in that stuff. Okay? But, but, but listen to me. These things do happen. Do you know this, right? Let's just remind us. I was at a meeting a few years ago. I was preaching for a... Uh, a pastor named Perry Stone, and it was in, I was in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and there was pastors from all over the world there. And I was in the meeting with him, and I'm sitting next to an Indian man. And by the way, if you don't know what God's doing in, in India, it is mind-bending what Jesus is doing. By the way, did you know most miracles in the world happen outside of the camera lens of Twitter and CNN? That's why you don't hear about them, and you're not going to hear about them in America. Okay? That's not... That's not, that's not Meaning they don't happen, they're just outside the confines of what we hear in the developing world. And I was next to this guy, and they kept, I, we kept hearing stories about God resurrecting people. And the guy would get up and talk about resurrection. And I'm a skeptic, right? I went to college, y'all. Like, I went to university. Are you with me? You're supposed to laugh. Like, I know things. 
And I looked over to this guy one time. I'm about to get up to preach, and he's a Sikh. He's got the turban on his head. And I look over at him, and I said, man, have you ever actually seen a resurrection? Kid you not, Simon was his name. He says, oh, yes, my wife. She was dead three days. We prayed for her. She now here in the back room. I'm like, I mean, I mean, these things happen. They happen all the time. But listen, clearly God was up to something unique in Peter. I, I, when I left my apartment this morning, nobody was laying outside my door in a cot. I got out of my apartment and there was no cot layers. So hear me, hear me, hear me. I don't have in some ways what Peter had. But I am saying the exact same power that was on Jesus of Nazareth and then on Peter and then on Philip and then on people throughout all of church history, through the history of the world, that exact same power is on us. And hear me, hear me clearly. I'm going to hit it next week. If you follow Jesus and you've been baptized in the Spirit, I'll talk about that next week. If you follow Jesus and you've been baptized in the Spirit, that Spirit is on you. That Spirit's on you. Now, maybe you're here and you say what most of us feel. I don't feel that power, Pastor Craig. Like, I don't go around healing the sick. I, I don't prophesy really. I barely have a hard time reading my Bible in the morning time. Like, I don't know if I hear really God's voice clearly. I can't even get free from masturbation and pornography. You know, that's, that's multiple times a week right now. I, I, I can't stop sleeping with my boyfriend. Like, I just, I mean, I've tried to, but it's just, it's just really difficult for me. I, I, don't, I don't feel that power. But here's the key. Remember what I said a minute ago. This is where the Holy Spirit as a person becomes incredibly important. Are you ready? A new study out by George Barna says this. The vast majority of American Christians think of the Holy Spirit as a force. So the majority of evangelical believers think of the Holy Spirit as Luke Skywalker, the force. The Spirit is a power we wield, when in reality the Holy Spirit is a person we are in a relationship with. The Holy Spirit is not a power sword we wield. It's a person that we talk to. So there is a power, but here's what you need to get. It is a person's power, not a detached, abstract power. Now, that matters. You say, why? For example, Tim Simmons. He's on our welcome team. Tim Simmons is a friend. He's a rip man. I like Tim Simmons. I've liked him since the get-go. He put in our bleachers. Before we even launched and relaunched, he put in our bleachers. He's, he's a rip man. He works with his hands. I like men who work with their hands, Andy. It means I like you. Y'all, Tim looks like Daniel Craig's little brother, okay? I mean, he's ripped. Tim's a strong dude. He's living proof that when it comes to genetics, all men are not created equal, okay? God gave Tim a little more than he gave me. I'm not. So when I need muscle power to move my house three weeks ago to get into an apartment, not just an apartment, but also storage, what I don't do is I don't sit in my house and turn on the eye of a tiger, okay, which probably is what Carol Baskin will dance to this week, and that was a joke, dancing with the stars. And so I don't sit there and wield and work myself up emotionally and wield the power of Tim Simmons to move my dresser. You know what I do? Now listen, I text him or I call him and I say, dude, can you come over and help me move? And you know what he does? He says, yes, I'm your friend, I'll be there. And then he comes over, and together, we partner together. Now, it's about 10% me and about 90% Tim, okay? And we partner together, and we move the dresser. All that to say, in the same way, as we grow in friendship with the Holy Spirit, because I have a relationship with Tim, I'm in relationship with him, we are friends. As we grow in our relationship with the Holy Spirit, we also grow in the Holy Spirit's power. So we don't have to set back and wield his power. We do what? We grow in friendship with him. We grow in communion with him, which means, watch this, there is a reciprocity between our relationship to the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit at work in and through us. Look at me, church. There is a back and forth between how we live and the level of power in our lives. If you were to think about this in a math equation, if you don't dismiss it, I thought it would help you, so I've, I've, I've taken the necessary steps to try to help us this morning. Here would be the math equation. Intimacy with God plus holiness plus faith equals Holy Spirit power. Now a short word on each of these. Intimacy with God. 
short word. What is this? There's a ton we can cover. We could cover so much, but listen. One, this, this is what I want you to understand. This is, by the way, what God is after in your life. For you and I to learn how to, you can call it cheesy all you want, how to walk closely with God. Think of Paul in Galatians 5.25. Oh, I want to preach this so bad. Maybe we'll hit it next week. Notice what he said. He said, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. We're going to keep in step with the Spirit. That means to keep in sync with the Holy Spirit. Watch this. That means to walk side by side with the Holy Spirit. That means to walk hand in hand with the Holy Spirit. That's what God wants for you. And listen, that really comes down to you hearing God's voice. That's what it comes down to, you listening to God. You ready? Intimacy with God is developing a practice of communion with the Father. That's what it is. God will give you impressions. God will give you images. God will give you words. God will give you scriptures. We'll talk in depth about this next week. But if you can learn to live aware and in tune with God's presence at every moment of every day, then what happens is you begin to have intimacy with God. Now, let me say something real quick, okay? This is real important. I want to take something that is a misconception and tie it up in three minutes if I can. Often in Western culture, we say a ton about theology and ethics, but we speak very little about lifestyle. Now, you hear me something. Lifestyle is where the money is. Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 says, you need to take my yoke on you. He says, my yoke is eaten, my burden is light. Learn from me. My yoke wants to be on you. That's what Jesus says. Now, watch this. Why does Jesus give the odd imagery of a yoke? What in the world's up with this language? This is a first century agrarian um, metaphor that doesn't really make sense in our modern culture. Frederick Bruner, one of the most brilliant theologians, this is what he said. He said this. He said, a yoke is a work instrument. Thus, when Jesus offers a yoke, he offers what we might think tired workers need least. They, don't need, they need a mattress or a vacation, not a yoke. But Jesus realizes the most restful gift he can give the tired is a new way to carry life. Watch this. A fresh way to bear responsibilities. Realism sees that life is a succession of burdens. Watch this. Watch this. We can't get away from the burdens. Thus, instead of offering a skate, Jesus offers equipment. Woo! What a line right there. Instead of offering a skate, Jesus offers equipment. Jesus means that obedience to the Sermon on the Mount, which is his yoke, will develop in us a balance and a way, quote-unquote, of caring life that will give more rest than the way we have been living. Look at me, church. There is an emotional weight to life. Would you agree? Okay, and the emotional weight of your life is not when you're a senior in college and just got a job and trying to finish out your 18 hours, okay? I'm sorry. You think it is? Just wait. Just wait, okay? <laughs> now listen, if there is no weight in your life, you're either really young or like you have, you're really rich and everybody does everything for you, okay? Like I'm in my mid-30s now, y'all, and every year, listen to me, I'm trying to be honest. Every year, I'm not, I am being honest. Uh, I'm trying to be real with you. Every year, I feel more weight come on me, more load on my back. And I'm, over, I'm often wondering, like, does, does it ever hit an age? Is it 40 or 50 where it goes the opposite way? So as you get to 45, because I got a career, then I got a job, now I got a second job, then a third job, then a fourth job, then I got this, then I got family, then I got family to take care of, then I got kids, then I got a marriage, then I got a church. And often, if we're honest, let's, I know, let's be honest. Often discipleship, watch this, feels just like another weight on top of all the others. Now watch this. I'm already tired, Pastor Craig. I've been working 50 hours a week. I've got no weekends to myself. And now you're saying I need to read my Bible every day and pray every day and fast and come to church every weekend. It just feels like a whole other thing. But pay close attention to Jesus' imagery. What is a yoke? A yoke ties two oxen together. And listen, a yoke was used to tie two oxen or donkey together. Why? To carry a load, a cart, or a plow in a field. Jesus is saying to you, I have a yoke here, Craig. You see this yoke right here? And I have a yoke here. And all I'm asking you to do is to come alongside me. And I want you to alter, alter your pace of life away from your desires and do what I told you in my word will make you like me. And if you'll alter your pace of life to my desires, you'll let me do the heavy lifting. I'll be the Tim Simmons. You be the Craig Mosgrove. And you tuck in right here. Watch this. And it will be easy for you. Listen to me. Listen to me, church. The hardest way to follow Jesus is to live like all the other people in your neighborhood and do everything else that the people in your neighborhood do for their kids and all of the other issues and then still try to cram in discipleship on the top 
top of that. That's why it feels heavy. What Jesus is saying is you've got to alter your life and say, I'm going to lay down my life and alter my pace of life to the life of Jesus. And that, that, my friends, is the hope of a life with an easy yoke. Look at me. The easiest way to follow Jesus is to radically alter your whole lifestyle and to take the pattern set by Jesus' lifestyle and say, I want to live like that. And every day in how I live in community and how I read the Bible and how I engage people, I put it like this last night. When you adopt the lifestyle of Jesus, then the life of Jesus is the natural byproduct. So now you don't have to add anything. When you adopt his lifestyle, his life becomes a byproduct. The secret of the easy yoke. But then we go to the second one, which is holiness. So we have intimacy with God, yoked with Jesus. Now we have holiness. The Holy Spirit is called by Jesus himself and many others the Holy Spirit. So holiness would be a big deal, right? Now, could we all agree that holiness has a pretty checkered past? Let me define it. It's really important for us to define it. Let's define it. Holiness is this, quote, to be set apart for God's special purpose. To be set apart. Now, there are two parts to holiness. You ready? I've got them on your card. The first is to be set apart from. The second is to be set apart for. To be set apart from, then to be set apart for. First is to say no to the world. World does not mean geopolitical entities. Anytime you read the word world, cosmos, in the Greek language, the, the New Testament uses the word world to say the culture of the world that's over and against the judgment, over and against in rebellion to God. That's the world. So he says we have to say no to greed. I have to say no to violence. I have to say no to hate. I have to say no to unforgiveness. I have to say no to anger. I have to say no to the American dream of more and more stuff and then another house and then this and that and this. I have to say no to that. I have to say no to the way of lust. I have to say no to the way of spiritual adultery. I have to say no to the way of gossip. I have to say no to the way of slander. I have to say no to the way of dishonesty in the world workplace. Listen, what that means is you in this room, you might look like all the other people around you on the outside, but how you live is different. But it not only just means to be set apart from, it means to be set apart for, but not just something, but someone. His name is God. I'm being set apart for God. Now, holiness often in the New Testament is translated as dedicated. Why? Because you are dedicated to God. You are set apart for God, holy to God. You are set apart for God's purposes. That means there's stuff you do for that. That means you gotta be involved in justice. That means you gotta be involved in a local church. That means you gotta be involved in prayer. That means you gotta be involved in reading scripture. That means you gotta be involved in community. That means you gotta be involved in reading and praying and worshiping. I was reading about Charles Finney this week. Charles Finney, one of the great, great leaders of the great awakening that swept the, the modern world. Listen, y'all, it, it so convicted me. It was said in multiple places that there was so much of the power of the Holy Spirit on Finney that when he would walk in the back of the room, people would start to break down and weep and repent without him saying a word. I, I read that all over the place. And it also said, you ready? When he would sense and start to sense that power of the Holy Spirit wane, he would set aside and drop all of his schedule for a whole nother day of 24 hours of prayer and fasting. Now think about that, y'all. Think about that. You walk into a room and no one's crying, you call your assistant. Shut off all of my schedule tomorrow. No one's crying right now around me. I know it sounds funny, but that's what he did. If he walked in and no one cried around him, he's, he's setting aside time for prayer and fasting. Man, we are content with no power, aren't we? We kind of like no power. He would set aside. I'm going to pray. I'm going to fast. Here's the point. You ready? There is a symbolic relationship between how holy we are and how much power is at work in and through us. Look at me, church. I do not obey God because I want blessing. Obedience is my lot because I am most suited in the new creation for obedience. And my purpose and destiny can only be revealed in obedience. So I'm not obeying. You know why people don't ever get excited about life? It's because they never find out what they're created to do. And you can't find out what you're created to do until you obey. You are, right now as a born-in creation, you are perfectly suited for complete 100% obedience. And when you obey, guess what happens? 
your design and your purpose gets revealed. How God made you becomes clear. So realness, holiness just comes down to lifestyle. A lifestyle of obeying and doing what Jesus said to do, which means that every temptation, I want you to listen to me, young people, this is key. Every temptation to disobey, to go into sin, is also an opportunity to grow and obey, and in doing so, you grow in power. Jesus goes into the wilderness, what happens? Temptation one, done. Temptation two, done. Temptation three, done. What does he do? Come back out of the wilderness? In the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit. Are you ready? Every temptation you face is a chance to grow in the power of the Holy Spirit. So what that means is when you are running on the trail in the morning and you're a trail runner and it's cold and it's December and you can see your breath. And of course, there she is. Always works out in a sports bra, girl. And she's running the trail. At that moment, man, you have an opportunity to grow in Holy Spirit power and you become fascinated with how well made your shoes are. Because something else is going to be looking at you. That's a, that's a moment. That's a chance to grow in the power of God. When you're at your work and your boss is an idiot and you could do his job way better and everyone in the room knows your boss is an idiot and you could do the job way better. And then in his weak moment or her weak moment, he turns, she turns and walks out of the room. And when they walk out of the room, everybody smirks and you want to let everybody in the room, you, you want to slander and let them have it about that boss. That is a chance for you to grow in the power of the Holy Spirit. So intimacy with God plus holiness plus faith. Now, I can't get past this one, can we? It's indisputable. I did my math homework last night, Zach. Challenge me if I'm wrong. 26 out of the 29 miracles in the Gospels, Jesus mentioned the word faith. So in 26 out of the 29, some word of faith was given. Whoa, I'm amazed at your faith. Oh, go in faith. You've been made whole. Your faith has made you well. Gordon, uh, or Jordan saying a book called Supernatural says this. He says, God's main goal is to encourage us to trust his love. So it makes perfect sense that he would arrange things so that power flows most easily through those that fully Trust his compassionate generosity in providing it. I'll put it this way. You ready? Miracle working faith believes that God is genuinely eager for the goodness of miracles. Does that help? I'm gonna say that again. Miracle working faith believes that God is genuinely eager for the goodness of miracles. So this isn't working yourself up emotionally and dancing. I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe. You know, it's all night prayer. I believe, I believe. You know, like, like I'm not, not going to eat. Like, when, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, because this is all night prayer week. And, and you, know, you know, this is not working yourself up emotionally. No, this is not this at all. What this is, miracle working faith is trust. That's what faith is, y'all. Can I tell you the best way to grow in faith? to risk. You have to step out in faith and believe that God is genuinely eager for the goodness of miracles. So if you've never prayed for somebody that's sick, what's the best way to show faith? Make a f risk, making a fool out of whatever your image and self image is and you pray for them. If you've never heard God's voice, you sit there for an hour with your notebook well, Craig, what if I write down something that was actually my pizza last night and not what God said? The pizza was speaking to me. Who cares? You're creating an expectancy for God to respond. That's what? That's faith. That's risk. You got to step out there and do it. You got to declare the gospel to somebody that you maybe not feel like declaring the gospel to. Y'all, the last few months I've been trying to grow in prophecy. I'm going to talk about this extent, uh, to extent next week. But, but I've been trying to grow in prophecy. And when you try to grow in prophecy, there's a command by Paul. He says to follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gift of prophecy. So that means we're supposed to do it. But here is, here is the, the moment of risk. Prophecy for us is far different from Elijah. Prophecy for Elijah was God speak audibly. I've not heard God speak audibly to me. Instead, what happens is as a word comes in my mind, an image comes into my mind, 
uh, a scripture comes into my mind, a sentence comes into my mind, an image, and it's very subjective. And at that moment, when it comes in my mind, guess what? I have to risk to share it with other people. And I've gotten it wrong before. That's okay. Church is a safe place to get it wrong. Okay, we'll tell you if you're wrong. I've totally blown it before. Okay, if we don't give space for people to take what they think the Holy Spirit is giving them and to risk sharing it. Now, what that means is you've got to approach it differently. We'll talk about that next week. Don't go and say, God said. You say, I feel and I sense within my spirit as I'm growing in leadership of the Holy Spirit that God wants to say this to you, right? Now it's different. Now people have the ability within the context and crucible of that local church to say, is it God's word or is it not God's word? But we have to come to a place where we're willing to risk to share that with somebody else. How do you know it's God and not you? You risk. And when you go tell the person, they break down in tears. And what God is speaking to their heart becomes confirmed. What did you do? You just grew in faith. Now, has any of you ever experienced this before? When you're trying to grow in faith, it seems like God gets real inconsistent sometimes in answering your prayers. No one? Okay, just me. Sometimes it's like there is a, I am aligned with heaven. Dear God, this is amazing. What happened? And then other times I'm like, man, I'm not using the right formula. Like Acts is act, adoration, confession, thanks, giving, and supplication. Maybe I'm doing TCAP. You know, maybe I started with Thanksgiving and then I went to confession. I mean, like, you know, like, I don't know if you've ever been there before, but God's like, my prayers are not being answered. Maybe some of you, you, you listen to me, you don't doubt God's heart, but you do actually doubt his power a bit. Maybe all the talk about this interventionist God, you're like, well, maybe we just got a little bit exaggerated about God and his willingness to do this. I don't know about you, but when I've gotten to a place when my prayers don't seem to be answered, I'm always like, well, maybe I'm the problem. Am I problem praying the wrong way? Did I, not, did I not use the right tagline? Did I say in the name of Jesus instead of the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit? Like, <laughs> what? Have you ever been there? What's going on? So why is this happening? Well, that begs the question, are you ready? How does prayer work? How does prayer work? Can I present to you in about three minutes my take on that? Maybe the question is not how does prayer work. Maybe it's actually what kind of prayers am I praying? I want to give you three stages to prayer that we work through in faith, and then we'll talk about and close it. There's three stages of our prayer. Now listen, I'm not saying these are sequential, although they are sequential. What I'm not saying is you hit stage one and then you're never in stage one again. You cycle through these. But I think, now I couldn't build a biblical theology and, and, and fight tooth and nail with you, but I think if you'll hear this, it'll really make sense to you. Three stages of prayer. So maybe it's not on God's side, maybe it's on my side, okay? Here's the truth to them. First stage of prayer is prayers of request, which is prayer, honestly, about getting what we want from God. And this is when you first became a believer. And a lot of our prayers like this are in the first stages of following God. We ask God to act, and he just acts out of his goodness and mercy. And this is truly represented in people's lives in their early stages of Christianity. It just seems like you pray, and he answers, right? You've known God three weeks, and you're at Starbucks. And you're like, God, if you're real, please send me my friend right now for coffee. You look up, your friend comes in for coffee. And you're like, hey, I know why you're here. I summoned you through prayer. God of the universe got you in your time. You know what I'm talking about? Y'all, I prayed for every family member in my, in my entire family member and led my whole family to Christ in the first three months. And then I wondered, why didn't he answer that many prayers for the next 15 years? He did in the first three months. I'm coming to learn something. This is the first stage of prayer. It's called the prayers of request, and it's really you're asking God to do what you want to do, but out of his goodness and mercy, he'll do it. But he's about to wean you. Are you ready? He's about to wean you off of prayers of request. I've done this thing as a parent. I started with my kids I call it a three by three, and I take my three kids, and uh, I check in with my kids, and I talk to them, and so I did this week in the car ride home from school. I said, Marley, let's do a three by three. What is a three by three? It's three things I'm doing good as a dad, and three things I need to improve in my relationship with you. So I went to Marley, and then I went to Knox. Three things, son, I'm doing good with you, three things I need to improve on. You know what Marley said first of all? She, she thought about it a minute, and she said, Dad, she said, basically, you're doing great, and and she said, I don't, I don't think I'd change anything. And I said, really, babe, why? And she said, she, she said, well, basically, you do everything I want. And I began to think, there is something wonderful about that because what's being established in her life is the nature of her father. Oh, but you can't stay there, can you? 
to not love her would to keep be giving her what she wants. Watch this. This is what the father does with us. So now that this kindness has played in her life, 10 years from now, if I said, babe, how do you know that I love you? She wouldn't say, I know that you love me, dad, because you give me everything I want. You would, she would say, dad, I know that you love me because you have not given me everything I want. Richard Foster says this. He says, we're learning to pray. This is what he says. We discover an interesting progression. In the beginning, our wills and struggle with God's. We beg, we pat, we demand. We expect God to perform like a magician or shower us with blessings like Father Christmas. We major in instant solutions and manipulative prayers. As difficult as the time of struggle is when he starts winning us, we must never despise it when he stops answering us. We must never try to avoid it. It's an essential part of our growing and deepening and things spiritual. He goes on to say, to be sure, it's a very inferior stage in stage one, but only in the sense that a child is an inferior stage than an adult. The adult can reason better and carry heavier loads because both brain and brawn are more fully developed but the child's doing exactly what we would expect at that age. So listen to me. This is life in the kingdom of God, the first stage of prayer. But then what happens? We move to the second stage of prayer. What's the second stage of prayer? I call them prayers of relationship. Everybody say relationship. So at this point, God's not trying to show us his power. He's trying to show us his face. So you know what God does in stage two of prayer? He pulls back and he tries to get you to realize rather than just help me, God, who are you, God? Psalm 27, verse 4, what does he say? Psalm 27, 4, he says very clearly, one thing I want to see, that I dwell in the house of the Lord all and to gaze on his beauty. Everybody say beauty. If I were to ask you what are the first three words you think of when you think of God, would beauty enter in the first three? That's who he is, not what he does. It shifts, doesn't it? Because he wants to see, Craig, do you love me for what I've been doing to you and saving all your family members, or do you love me for me? And then the third point of prayer. And I don't think this is one God leads us to or pushes us into. I think it's one he invites us in. And I would say probably 90% of Christians don't get to it. It's called the prayers of relinquishment. You know what that is? Prayers of relinquishment is the stage of prayer where we wrestle with God until he changes us, next slide, into the kinds of people that are ready and willing to do the will of God. That's the prayers of relinquishment. These are prayers I don't want to do, King, but I surrender to you, God, that your will may be done. Can we just be honest? Stage one of prayer is about what we want done. Prayers of request. Stage three of prayer is I really don't like your calling on my life, God, but I surrender for your will to be done. It's deeper surrender. Come on, team. Be careful. Look at me, church. Be careful. Be careful. Why? Because prayer will change you. And if you sit with God long enough, you will start wanting to do what you've never wanted to do. Be careful. If you don't want your life changed, don't sit silent before Him. I'm just forewarning you. Because the longer you sit with Him, right? Intimacy with God, holiness, and faith you will start wanting to do what you've never wanted to do in your life. And here's the truth. Did y'all know the evangelism of the entire world could happen in 365 days if all 3.5 billion believers on the planet prayed a prayer of relinquishment today and said, I'm no longer for my agenda, but his. We would win the world in one year. Every social issues justice issue in the entire church of Jesus, in the entire world would be solved by the church of Jesus Christ in one year if everybody said, I'm not praying for what I want, I'm relinquishing and doing my high calling in Christ. We would win the world in a year. Now, I'm not a smart guy, but equations mean whatever's on this side equals that side. Right? Intimacy with God. Holiness in my life, faith in my life equals the power of the Holy Spirit. So the question is, how bad do you want it? How bad do you want it? I'm being honest with you. How bad do you want this? Enough to carve out time in your schedule? Enough to say no to sin? Enough to risk? If you do, you'll get it. If you don't, you won't. We've overcomplicated this thing. The Holy Spirit is a gift given to us. You know why it's a gift and not a reward? Because you don't need 
power at the end of the race. You need power to start the race. So he doesn't give you the Holy Spirit as a reward for finishing. He gives it to you at the beginning to start. You can't be good enough to receive his Holy Spirit or else you wouldn't need him. But if you'll ask, and then you'll get along with him and grow in holiness, and then you whisk, you will walk in the power of the Spirit. Father, thank you. Thank you that your presence is here. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that we do want, we do desire. Pray for each person in this room right now as we journey throughout our week this week, that we would really want it. That we would really want to see the power of the Spirit upon our lives, working in and through our lives. And that whatever is damning up, whatever unrighteousness or lack of sanctification or sin or habits, lack of faith and trust or devotion to so many other things other than just intimacy with you, that you would realign the priorities and the desires of our heart this morning and that we could walk in the power of the Spirit. Lord, the world around us needs to see a church not operating in the arm of the flesh, but in the supernatural power of God's Holy Spirit. It is available. And today you said if we ask, we shall receive. So today we ask, would you stand with me all across this room? Just ask him as they sing this song of benediction. Just tell the Lord, I realize how I live matters, God. Not just what I believe, it's what I do. So change my lifestyle. Give me power by your spirit. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. 